Hi, this is Renee Robertson, and today's episode features something a bit different. Based on the popularity of bonus shows we've produced featuring true crime stories from North and South Carolina, I've decided to drop two episodes a month in a new format. These episodes will be shorter than the shows on missing persons cases, but will showcase a variety of cold cases and other stories from North and South Carolina that have been solved over the years. Since I first started this podcast, I've written additional true crime for my blog, and I thought, what better way to put that content to even more use than by sharing it here? I hope you agree. Let's get started. North Carolina isn't exactly the place where one would expect to find a man suspected of being involved with the assassination of the Prime Minister of Sweden hiding out. Nor would they expect the man would be murdered as the result of a love triangle and not his troubles abroad. But that's what happened to a man named Victor Gunnarsson in December of 1993. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town, but all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. Every other week, we'll take a brief look at some of these crimes, solved or unsolved, and learn more about the darker part of our region. I'm Renee Robertson, and this is True Crime in the Carolinas. Before we discuss Victor Gunnarsson, we first need to start by explaining how a native from Salisbury, Kay Whedon, first met a man named Lamont Claxton, also known as L.C. Underwood, in the summer of 1992. A reporter named Jonathan Weaver covered the story of their relationship in a January 13, 2004 article for the Salisbury Post. Both were divorced, and they hit it off when they met at the home of a mutual acquaintance. Kay worked as a high school teacher, and L.C. was working as a police officer for the Salisbury Police Department. He had also previously worked in law enforcement at the North Wilkesboro and Newton Police Departments and the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department. In the beginning of their relationship, Elsie spared no expense when it came to taking Kay out and buying her gifts. But after dating for only a few months, he proposed marriage on Thanksgiving of that year. The relationship between the two quickly grew toxic, though. Kay had witnessed a few outbursts from Elsie that made her uncomfortable, and he disagreed with her about the way she was raising her teenage son at the time. They first broke up about a month after getting engaged, but reunited early the next year. Elsie grew more jealous and possessive of Kay. Due to ongoing back issues, he took disability retirement at the end of 1993, and the two separated again in March. Kay then received three anonymous typewritten letters mailed from Cleveland, North Carolina. The letters threatened her son and spoke of burning Kay's house down. Through one of these letters, Kay also realized someone had shot into her home and investigators found a bullet hole in her son's bedroom, along with a projected spent 22 caliber projectile inside his dresser drawer. The investigators suspected L.C., who was working as a resource officer at Salisbury High School, had created the letters using a typewriter at the school. Kay did not want to make any accusations involving L.C. as the culprit, but he was suspended from his position anyway during the investigation. 
In June of that year, they stopped talking about marriage plans yet again. Kay eventually tried dating other people, but Elsie confronted her while she was out having dinner with another man and dumped iced tea on her lap. Now, let's talk about Victor Gunnarsson. Back on February 28, 1986, Prime Minister Olaf Palm was exiting a movie theater on a busy street in Stockholm when he was shot and killed. His wife, Lisbeth, sustained injuries during the attack, but survived. Because Victor, known to be a staunch right-wing extremist at the time, was spouting off hate speech about Palm at a nearby bar right before the shooting, Stockholm police detained and questioned him about possible involvement. Citing lack of evidence, they later dropped charges and released Victor. Despite claiming innocence, he was not well received in the city after his release. Other extremist groups had even labeled Palm a communist in the past, refused to associate with Victor. He decided to make a clean break and ended up living in Salisbury, North Carolina, working as a language tutor and living in a modest apartment building in town. Victor used this time away from his reputation in Sweden to reinvent himself. He often told women varying stories, that he was an FBI agent or a film director. That's where he met Kay, and they began dating. On Friday, December 3, 1993, Kay went out to dinner, and Victor later dropped her off at her house. A few days later, Kay's mother, 77-year-old Catherine Miller, was found shot to death in her apartment. To investigators, it appeared she must have known who her killer was because there were no signs of forced entry. When Kay learned of her mother's death, she was distraught and tried to call Victor to share the news with him. That's when she realized no one had been in contact with him and he was reported missing. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as a runner-up with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally to writers of all ages, and entries must be in English. The best part is that the contest is open to all genres, from romance to science fiction to thriller suspense to literary fiction. The Winter 2022 Flash Fiction Contest, with literary agent Hannah Andrade with the Bradford Literary Agency, closes on February 28th. Learn more by visiting wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the show. Mark Price covered this case for the Charlotte Observer in the summer of 1997. Here's what readers learned from his reporting. In January 1994, About a month after Victor Gunnarsson's disappearance, a land surveyor discovered the nude body of a man buried in the snow in an area called Deep Gap in Watauga County, North Carolina. He wore only a watch and a ring. He had died of two gunshot wounds to the head and neck. Investigators checked the state missing persons database and suspected the man was Victor, 
Fingerprints from Interpol confirmed his identity. The case was complicated because it involved two different jurisdictions, both Rowan and Watauga counties. When investigators learned of the crime Victor was suspected of in Sweden, they wondered if his murder was tied to that case. But over the next four years, investigators zeroed in on Elsie Underwood. He had phoned a police friend and asked for the registration information on Victor's license plate when it was parked at Kay's house right after the two had started dating. Elsie also had a history of stalking women when they ended their relationships with him. They matched language found on a typewriter ribbon in Elsie's house to that series of threatening letters Kay had received after she called things off with him. When investigators searched Elsie's car, they found it immaculate, but there were 16 different hairs embedded in the fiber that matched Victor's. Investigators theorized Underwood abducted Gunnarsson at gunpoint after he left Kay's house, drove him to the 90-plus miles in Deep Gap, shot him in the woods, and stripped him of his clothing to destroy evidence. He then drove back to Salisbury and knocked on Catherine Miller's door, shooting her when she turned her back on him in the apartment. At his trial for Victor's murder, prosecutors said Elsie believed if he murdered the two most important people in Kay's life, she would return to him for comfort. His defense attorney tried to deflect blame on political enemies from Sweden who had discovered Victor in the United States, but the jury didn't buy it. He was convicted in 1997 of the murder and sentenced to life, along with 40 extra years for the charge of kidnapping. He was never tried for Catherine Miller's murder, but most believed he was responsible, and Kay was spared from sitting through another painful trial. Elsie died of natural causes in Central Prison in Raleigh, on December 23, 2018. As to who murdered Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palm, a man named Christer Peterson was eventually convicted after Palm's wife identified him in a police lineup. The conviction was later overturned due to lack of evidence, and Peterson received $50,000 in compensation. That case is still open, and over the years, investigators have interviewed 10,000 people in regards to Palm's death and 134 different individuals have falsely claimed to be responsible for the crime. This next case I want to talk about didn't actually take place in the Carolinas, but it features a convicted murderer named William Dathan Hulbert, who grew up here. He was known to his friends as Wild Bill Cortez on the small island of Bocas del Toro, a Caribbean enclave in Panama popular with tourists and expats. But what no one knew was that Wild Bill was really a fugitive from North Carolina who had found the perfect paradise to fund a lifestyle he felt he deserved. In reality, William Dathan Hulbert grew up in Hendersonville, North Carolina, where he played football at North Henderson High School, started up his own landscaping business after graduation, got married, and fathered three children. In 2004, while working at a fitness chain in the Asheville area called The Body Shop, William became manager at one Hendersonville branch. In 2010, Marie Hoover, who ran the chain of centers with her husband Kevin, realized they weren't getting bank statements for the business. When they went to the bank to investigate, they discovered William had been writing himself personal checks from the business accounts to the tune of $25,000. He explained to the Hoovers that he thought that money was part of his salary, to which they explained it wasn't. This was also when he met Laura Reese, 
and when his wife discovered they were having an affair, she filed for divorce. The Hoovers chose not to press charges against William at the time because they simply wanted to terminate the relationship and remove him from the business. William and Laura rented a home for a time in Cleveland County. They also opened a white supremacist bookstore in Forest City, where they sold stickers, bandanas, and swastikas. They later moved on to the coast, and in 2006, went on the run after they were accused of trying to sell a property in Oak Island that they did not own. According to this article in the New York Post, the couple ended up in Panama around November of 2007, where William realized the process for buying a home was much different than in the U.S. To sell your home, no lawyer was required on the spot. As long as you had the certificates and the corporate paperwork, you could sell direct because whoever physically had possession of that paperwork was legally the home's owner. William answered an ad from a man named Michael Brown who was looking to sell the small hostel he owned. According to William, Michael was a fugitive hiding out from the U.S. law enforcement and evading drug trafficking charges, living under an assumed name. The New York Post reported he was a wanted fugitive from Florida who had more than $100,000 in cash in a Hong Kong bank while he lived a quiet life of seclusion in Panama. William spent three days visiting with the family before he murdered them, took over the deed to the house, found the passwords to the bank account, and requested a new ATM card for himself. Laura soon moved in with him. After murdering the Brown family, William claims he turned their home into the Jolly Rogers Social Club, using alcohol and drugs to lure in other expats who could become potential victims. Other victims included Cheryl Hughes, a 53-year-old woman who had lived in Panama for 10 years when friends and family stopped hearing from her and reported her missing in March of 2010. Bo Aklar, a gallery owner from Santa Fe, New Mexico, was also reported missing in November of the same year. In all, authorities located five bodies on the property of the hostel. William and Laura were captured in July of 2012 as they tried to enter Nicaragua from Costa Rica. Laura claimed she had no idea William had murdered anyone, although she couldn't answer questions about how she thought they were earning income when William wasn't working. She also couldn't explain where the influx of cash was coming from. The motive? It appeared to be greed, pure and simple. William Dathan Holbert murdered them for cash, real estate property, and other assets. He was sentenced to 47 years by a court in Panama for his crimes. Laura received 26 years. An author named Nick Foster has written a book about the crimes titled The Jolly Roger Social Club, A True Story of a Killer in Paradise. In an interview with the Daily Mirror published in January 2019, Holbert claims that he's a rock star in the Panamanian prison pays cash to get conjugal visits with his new wife and a slew of other eyebrow-raising claims. He also brushes off his crimes, claiming he's not that interesting because he killed a bunch of people for their money. This brings us to the conclusion of True Crime in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? 
email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia and Daniel Robertson. Thank you so much for listening.